So here we are in 1975 during DeFeo's trial. Unbeknownst to DeFeo at the time, his attorney, William Weber, decided that he was going to take this story and try to sell it to whoever was going to buy it, whatever book publisher was going to buy it. Uh, He saw something there and him and a couple of other people had sat down and tried to concoct this murder mystery, I guess, if you want to call it that, or, you know, something similar to The Exorcist or whatever they were deciding on doing. We all know that it ended up being the Amityville Horror. But the funny thing is, is the whole setup. So as you'll come to find out, during the trial, the Amityville house was sold. It was near the end of the trial, you know, somewhere around November that the Lutzes became interested in the house. But that's that's the weird part of this whole story. Like they didn't buy the house and, and then, you know, it closed 30 days later and whatever they move in because it takes a little bit longer than that. So sometime during the middle of the trial, when the back and forth was going on, that would be my guess, is when the negotiations for the house were happening. And my guess is that William Weber was also involved in in this whole negotiation process, you know, setting up the story, telling the Lutzes what they were planning on doing. And then the Lutzes were going to move in temporarily because when they moved out, they left everything. So... It sounds like this is, you know, call it a conspiracy that William Weber helped them move into the house, helped them get financing for the house, helped them get furniture for the house and clothes and everything else. And basically like a 90 day or six month thing. I don't even think they were there that long. They were they were there for a couple months and then they fled it's all too convenient. And then the book gets published in, in 1977, which is essentially just a year after everything has happened. So 1975, they plan the book series or the book. They sell the house at the end of 75. Three months later, the whole thing goes absolute tits up for the Lutzes and they escape or run away from the house. And then the book rights get sold. And then the movie and then a movie was made. All of that stuff was pre-negotiated because it takes however long it takes to write a book. And it takes however long it takes to write a script for a movie. You know, a year, two years, however long it takes, depending on how fast the writer works and what type of uh, create creative power he has. And then to get published, to sell the book and get published. You know, so they take advantage of the big story in in Long Island, New York, that it was all a big ghost story and demonic possession and this and that. It has the publishers eating it up. And William Weber is right at the center of this whole thing. But there's more to this story, which is amazing. So uh, here's the rest of the trial and the beginning of the Lutzes and the beginning of how the story went down. The literal story, the book, went down. For his book, Talking with Serial Killers, British criminologist Christopher Barry D. interviewed Justice Stark. Confronting Justice Stark on Sullivan handpicking him, Justice Stark, with a wave of a hand, dismissed this and said, In hindsight, this was quite wrong, but things were different back then. At the outset, in an attempt to nail Weber down on his defense during a private post-hearing conference, Justice Stark asked, At this time, Mr. Weber, are you prepared to continue our discussion as to the matter of the defendant's intentions or raising the defense of mental disease or defect? Weber replied, Your Honor, 
I'm not able to answer you on that point at this time. Still needing a definitive answer, Justice Stark continued pressing Weber on the issue, whereas Weber replied, Your Honor, at this point, the only thing I could ask the court to consider is my application for an adjournment to the trial. Weber went on to explain to Justice Stark his need for a 60-day adjournment. Because he had been retained as an attorney only since July, Weber needed more time to prepare his case. Although Judge Signorelli had granted Weber's omnibus motion on August 1st, Weber had not received any paperwork from the district attorney until August 27th. During the post-hearing conference, Weber explained Race's findings, multiple killers, weapons, and accomplices not being prosecuted. With such an overwhelming amount of evidence, Weber felt an adjournment was appropriate. Besides, Weber argued that the presence of an accomplice who they named at the post-hearing conference to show that this witness was not cooperating might assist Butch in an emotional strain defense rather than a mental defect one. If an emotional strain defense was used and successful, then the charge against Bush would be reduced from second-degree murder to first-degree manslaughter. Although William Weber fought valiantly for his client, in the end, Stark denied Weber's request and ordered the jury selection to commence on Monday, October 6, 1975. It was clear that Butch DeFeo was not being afforded the fullest protections of the American judicial system. Go figure. So the alternative methods were needed, including persuading Bush to plead insanity by pretending, among other things, to hear voices in the Amityville house. It was the early beginnings of the Amityville haunted house hoax. However, Butch was no actor and his testimony actually backfired when he admitted not hearing any of the so-called voices the night of the murders. In an affidavit, Barry Springer stated that William Weber had told him that people approached him to write a book even before Butch's trial had started. Geraldine DeFeo further explained because Butch felt insulted that his insanity could be questioned, Weber had to convince him by alternate means. He promised Butch that he'd get out in two or three years and that he'd be rich from the book's success. In a notarized affidavit, Geraldine DeFeo admitted to being party to the initial planning of a book before backing out due to ethical concerns. And we had mentioned that um, when we were initially talking about the Amityville horror, the Amityville murders, the DeFeo murders, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and all of that other stuff. Because the book came out and was relatively successful, but there was also this whole conspiracy, if you want to call it a conspiracy thing, where the author of the book, or at least not the author of the book, the, the, the initial, one of the initial people that was interested in writing the book sat down and put this whole story together with another person and decided that at that point in time, this would be a great story. Let's call it the Amityville Horror, and we can use this story, these murders, as the basis for this Amityville Horror, this haunting, this possession, demons, and yada, 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 and then go from there. And... um a lot of people got rich off of it. So the DeFeo house evolved from a tragic mass murder scene to an icon of horror in 1977. A runaway bestseller titled The Amityville Horror, produced, or I'm sorry, written by Jay Anson, that's the person I was talking about initially, took the nation by storm. The promotional copies sent out by the publisher, Prentice Hall, hailed it as the nonfiction Exorcist. The cover carried a subtitle called A True Story. The names of several individuals mentioned in this book have been changed to protect their privacy. However, all facts and events, as far as we have been able to verify them, are strictly accurate. So, Jay Anson undertook the daunting challenge of chronicling George and Kathleen Lutz's questionable claims that they and their three small children felt threatened from strong supernatural forces while living at 112 Ocean Avenue. Apparently, the family moved into the uh, DeVeo house, believing it to be their dream home. Now, I question where George and Kathleen Lutz come from. So if they were anywhere in this or near this area, then they knew all about what was going on. 
or if they even knew the dad, you know, senior, not not uh, Ron, um, Luis, Luis's dad, Brigante. What if these people knew Brigante Sr.? What if these people were, you know, uh, friends of the family or something like that? I, I just don't believe that, you know, they would move into the house and then feel like writing a novel with this guy. Whereas, you know, two years before that, I'm sorry, not even two years, like they moved in the same month that Ron DeFeo was sentenced to life in prison. And, you know, in that whole time, the whole book thing was already being bandied about. So they must have known one of the people that were involved with this whole trial that was going on anyways. According to Anson's book, Father Mancuso, a pseudonym for a priest named Father Pecoraro, <sighs> thank you, Leo, arrived to bless the family's new home on the same day they moved into it. While the Lutzes unloaded their rented moving van, the Catholic priest entered the house and began his ritual blessing alone. He made his way upstairs to the second floor and entered the northeast bedroom, which had been Mark and John's room. As he, as he sprinkled holy water around the room and recited a prayer, he heard a loud male voice allegedly saying, Get out! I should use the Eddie Murphy thing. All right, get the fuck out. Although the priest supposedly did not tell the family about the voice, he did warn them about the room, saying, Don't use it as a bedroom. Don't let anyone sleep in there. According to a Good Housekeeping article dated April 1977, the Lutzes followed the priest's advice, turning the room into a sewing room. From the very first night they moved in, the family claimed they felt strange sensations. Anson had written that the family's personality had drastically changed. On one occasion in the book, the young couple beat their children with a strap and a large wooden spoon. After moving to the house, the children had apparently become brats. Mm. Purportedly, things worsened over the next few weeks, from the stench of bile to the smell of cheap perfume. The family became increasingly perplexed by the mysterious odors that would emanate from different locations of the house. Black stains appeared in the toilets and could not be lifted even with Clorox. Green slime ran down the walls, although there appeared to be no reason or source. Hundreds of flies appearing in the sewing room despite it being the dead of winter. Of course, Anson's crowning moment was an upside-down crucifix, and this was just the tip of the so-called Amityville haunting. According to Anson, the phenomena then turned physical. Kathy was victimized by unseen touches, which had sometimes forced her to pass out. On the other hand, George would sit hours by the fireplace because he suffered from constant chills. In addition, he would wake up nightly at 3.15 a.m., reasoning that there was a connection between that hour and the hour that the DeFeos were killed. In reality, the time of the deaths was never determined by the medical examiner. As the months progressed, apparently the situation worsened for the family. Anson reported that George awoke one night to witness his wife transform into a 90-year-old hag. The next night, she began levitating, like Zul, forcing her husband to grab her before she floated away. Realizing they needed help, the family contacted the same Catholic priest to ask him to return to perform another blessing. According to Jay Anson's book, the priest had been feeling the after-effects from the first blessing. Whatever was plaguing the family was also bothering the priest. After failing to get the priest to return, the family took matters into their own hands. Armed with a crucifix, they walked through the house reciting the Lord's Prayer. A chorus of voices erupted in response, asking them, Will you stop? The most incredible part of Anson's story was his claim that the daughter had befriended an invisible red-eyed pig named Jody. Jody could not be seen by anyone unless it wanted to. At times, it was a little bigger than a teddy bear, and other times, bigger than the house. George Lutz explained in October 1979 on the TV show In Search Of, which he served as a consultant and participant for the show. Well, of course. One night while coming back from the boathouse, Anson had George Lutz witnessing Jody standing behind his stepdaughter in her bedroom. 
Kathy Lutz's introduction to her daughter's friend was just as disturbing. On a separate evening, she was startled to see two red eyes peering in through the darkness from the window. Although Anson's version was dramatic, Hollywood's adaptation was simply unbelievable. The book reported that the malevolent forces caused significant property damage to the house, such as the front door being ripped off its hinges, windows being smashed, banisters being torn from their fittings, damage to the garage door, and water damage from hurricane force winds, which local meteorological stations had no record of. Even their dog Harry, a Malamute, Labrador mix supposedly suffered from the strange forces. Although the dog was normally hyper, it had become increasingly lethargic while at the house. One time the dog had almost choked itself because it tried to scale the fence, or so the book would have readers believe. One of the more chilling events in Anson's book was when George awakened to the sound of a marching band in his living room. He claimed he raced downstairs and entered the room only to find dead silence and the furniture pushed to one side. After 28 days in the DeFeo home, the family claimed that they could take no more. They grabbed only a few belongings and fled the house, taking shelter at Kathy Lutz's mother's home in nearby Babylon, Long Island. Jay Anson's The Amityville Horror sold more than 3 million copies, was turned into a major motion picture that grossed more than $80 million. The family happily went on a nationwide tour to promote their book as their true story. Nevertheless, questions remain about the validity of their claims. Butch DeFeo, however, believes the stories were concocted with the help of William Weber, Butch's defense attorney in 1975. In a handwritten letter, Butch wrote, Amityville was a hoax that Weber and the Lutzes started. To, yes, to make money. It was started as my trial was in progress, because they moved in in December. Although George Lutz proclaimed his story to be true, William Weber argued the story and Anson's book were not. In the September 17, 1979 issue of People magazine, Weber charged, I know this book's a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine. Amityville may never see an end to the legendary ghost stories that made it famous, although entertaining in one sense, comical in another, Jay Anson's book and the subsequent film adaptation have weathered nearly four decades, successfully spawning a cottage industry built on a haunted house hoax. And then we'll just go from there. All right, you guys, I really appreciate you listening.